My name is Rick, and I'm an alcoholic, and I used to drink, eh? <laughs> if I never drank, I wouldn't be here. I'm a real proud member to be a member of the Mystic Knights that meet Wednesday nights. Uh, I belong to an amazing group of old farts. Now, I understand the Ku Klux Klan in the southern states is called the Mystic Knights, and how we ended up with a group with that name I'll never know, but I refer to it as the Old Farts Group in fear of that getting around, right? <laughs> Anyways, I better start drinking, I guess. Um, I better tell you who I am. I was, uh, I was born in Ontario 53 years ago into a family of, with four kids, and I was the... Uh, third kid. I had a much older brother. I had a sister who was a bit seven years younger, and I was seven years younger than her, and I had a sister that was seven younger, years younger than me. So my mother had babies for 21 years, and the joke in my house was my father got the seven-year itch and stayed home, and uh, <laughs> we... My older sister was severely cerebral palsy, and she was brain injured from birth. And um, uh, this was before health care as we know it today. Health care started in 1964. And so my sister was in braces and on drugs and had to have physiotherapy all, every night. And my mother and father always had black eyes from her spastic arms and legs shooting out. And, and it was a house where there was a huge need for people to get together. So I saw things like AA in my youth. I saw dances, fundraising dances. I saw um, the community get together. And in my house, there was lots of drinking. Um, I come from a background where we're part Irish and part Scottish, which makes sense to me now. Part of me has always wanted to get drunk and the other part never wanted to pay. <laughs> and uh, we had great parties in that house. There was lots of dancing and lots of laughter. And if there was something abnormal about it, I didn't get that. I didn't get that at all because it was, it was what I knew. It was my home. And, and my father uh, died a drunk. He died a drunk. But it was normal. It was excitement, it was dancing, it was people laughing and having fun, and that's what I associated with drinking. But there was something wrong with my drinking thing. The very first time I drank, there was a bunch of kids from the neighborhood went camping down at the river, and before we left, we got a peanut butter jar full of everything. There was gin, there was vodka, there was rum, there was sherry, there was anything to take, leave nose hairs on the pillow, right? And we got down to the river and the jar went around once and they were all spitting it out. They are all fools. And I finished that jar. So I came home in the back of a police cruiser in someone else's clothes. And that's not very funny. And my father made a statement to me then. He said, son, if you can't handle that stuff, you leave it alone. And my keen mind said, I'll try harder. And I worked. I, it may not have been my fault, Harold, but I worked real hard on it. And, uh, and it started out with me being able to keep it from coming up my nose. And it ended up being me trying very much um, to keep the lights from going out and from me doing sad and pathetic things. I had blackouts right from the beginning. And I never knew, never knew which night it was going to be. Was it going to be the night where I'd have four drinks and I'd grit my teeth and put everyone around me through the misery of not drinking anymore or were the lights going to go out and was I going to start dancing on tables? And I never knew. I just never knew. And I got in trouble. Um, I was kind of a clown. I was the guy that always got caught and got in trouble. I might, when I was in school, I was the kid at the back of the classroom. There was always some girl with a bun on her head at the front of the class, and she was the keener. And I never wanted to be a keener in my life. You remember that girl 
who always was pumping her arm and always wanted to answer all the questions first. There was one in all of my classes, and I never wanted to be that person. I was at the back of it. I was a clown, always. Well, I got in trouble, and, um, and I lived in a, in a kind of a crazy household um, because, because we had cerebral palsy in our house. Um, there were people always coming and going. There was, uh, there was always this activity and excitement. But it was a good home overall. And I was raised in a home where I never, ever saw my father say anything disparagingly about my mother. He always treated her with grace and dignity. He was a drunk, but he never said anything unkind in front of anyone else. When they're alone, he used to call her that thin-lipped Presbyterian woman, but that was a different thing. <laughs> that was the Scottish side, right? And, uh, um, but I, I was the kind of guy that was, I, I got real good at drinking, and I was the guy that drove everyone else home because I could hold my liquor better. I didn't understand that that just meant I had a fatty liver. In my mind, I thought that that meant I, could, I was more of a man. And one of the greatest horrors in my life is I was very tiny as a child. I was the kind of kid that would run in and out of a fireplace without clocking myself on the head. I was so tiny. And growing up, I heard cute little Ricky a lot more than I wanted to hear. I wanted to be Rick, you know? <laughs> you know? And then this weak chin little snot, right? And, and I never was. I never was. And uh, I was never, uh, never a lover. I got get too drunk too fast. I was never a fighter. I had a medical problem in all fairness. I had no guts. Do what you want to the girl, but leave me alone. You know, I was never a fighter. I never wanted to be that. I don't like pain. Line up for that, dummy. You know. But I liked to party, and uh, I was working at a. Or I, I had to leave school early. I, uh, I had, I had a, a learning disability that wasn't recognized in the late 50s and early 60s. I was dyslexic severely. And, uh, and so I was strapped daily and weekly for uh, not performing at the level they figured I should have performed at because I was always precocious. I always had a smart-ass mouth. I always was one lines and quick lines and right now. And they always expected more out of me, and yet I couldn't read. I think I was 13 before a teacher taught me to close one eye to read. And, uh, and so I, I had a real problem with authority. I'm, I'm still bristle when I walk into schools with my kids um, because I had some teachers that just wouldn't give up on me. Damn them. And uh, I can honestly say today there's four things that kept me from a university degree. Those four things were grades 9, 10, 11, and 12. <laughs> The first real good chance I had to get away from school, um, I was working, I was just 16 years old, and I was working as a dishwasher in a, in a little restaurant, and the short order cook had a stroke. And they handed me a hamburger turner and an apron and said, start turning burgers, kid. And, uh, and I fell in love with the, the idea of becoming a chef. I, you know, I was, I was going to become a connoisseur, I guess. But the way I drank, I was a common sewer. I mean, it was it just didn't fit, right? But I, I really liked, I really liked the kitchen, and I really, I was, I was a very much a Hitler type guy for running the kitchen. But I really loved it because it was creative, and I could have fun all day long and kid people and tease, and and, and I and I did pretty well at it, and I and I started an apprenticeship. And I got my, my chef papers. I became a Red Seal chef. I still don't know what the hell that means. Uh, I, I always had to cook. And, uh, and I really loved it. I really loved it. But I drank. And I always drank. Drank as much as I could hold. Control drinking is, is largely 
put as much as you can inside of you and try and control yourself. <laughs> and try not to spill any. Once you get her in, keep her there. I, I was working at a very exclusive country club. I was the sous chef, and that's the second in command. And this little brunette started working there, and she was different. You know, she had, you know, that Irish eyes are smiling stuff. It really happens, you know. And, uh, and I started dating this poor gal. And uh, we, I work a split shift, and we go over to my parents' place and go for a swim in the afternoon and then go back to work in the evening. And, uh, and we had a ball. And I had a honeymoon with booze and dancing and partying. And for me, booze was sweaty bodies thrashing around on dance floors. It was excitement. We had a ball. And, uh, and I, I just, it was crazy fun we had. And there came that time I got charged with impaired driving again. And I got real scared, so I proposed to her. <laughs> no, but it really was a romantic thing, you know. It, it really was, because despite being afraid and uh, terrified of where I was headed, um, I, really wanted, I really wanted to be a whole guy, you know. I wanted to be... I want to be the guy that sat across from the table and she'd look over and she'd give you that knowing look. Guys, you, you know that look? Yeah, I didn't either for a long time. <laughs> she'd look across the table and give you that knowing look and go, that's my guy, you know? No way. <laughs> Not for a long, long time. I was, I think about it. I mean, that's, we, we got married. Um, August 20th, 1977, the exact same day they were lowering, lowering Elvis Presley into the ground, we got married. And my wife was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my entire life coming up the aisle, all sparkly, Irish-eyed. And, and, uh, and I had no skills for this. You know, my, my parents partied and had a good time. It's not like I had a lot of great examples. And so we got, so I never forget telling my dad, I said, I said, I'm going to marry Joanne. And he said, oh, don't do that to her. Jesus, kid. <laughs> I think it was a common joke in those days, you know. Oh, leave her alone. The poor girl's had enough. But we got married, and, and, and it started something really awful. See, we, just previous to marriage for three years or two years, whatever it was, Joanne was in nursing school, and I was drinking all week. And some of my heaviest drinking came when she was away in nursing school. And I go visit her on weekends, and I was twitchy. I had hives. I was in such toxic overload from booze. And uh, why she didn't see this twitchy, hive-colored thing, I don't know. But um, we ended up, uh, ended up getting married. And then the shock of marriage was, now I had to be that guy on the other side of the table. And I was in this horrible thing where I really needed to drink by then. And, and fortunately or unfortunately, being a nurse meant she worked shift work. So she'd go out the front door, and I'd go out the back door. And I'd be hitting the booze, and uh, I was very physically allergic. So when Joanne would come in, it was like formaldehyde coming out of my pores. Just like urinal soap. I smelled, I smelled bad. So when they say, what an order... I used to think, what an odor, you know, that was me. I really was bad shape. And I used to scald myself. I was a scalder. I'd get up in the morning and I'd have that oily sweat from drinking the night before. I don't know if any of you ever had that, where you feel just like itchy and rotten. And, and I used to scald. And so I'd, I, I was also, I'd sleep through the alarm two or three times with that 10-minute button. So get up 20 minutes late, run through a steaming shower, and hit traffic with a red face and wave at everyone with a one finger. Get out of my way, I'm going. And that's how I lived. And it was upset stomach, sweaty, awful, horrible feelings, that high voltage electrical wire with no insulation feeling. And that's what booze was like. And I started getting in trouble in my marriage. And I started lying. And I started sneaking. 
and I started hiding. And the problem with lying is, is if you tell one, there's three or four more coming on the tail of that to cover it. And I would get confused, and I would make mistakes in my lies. And Joanne would look at me, and it was like I had just kicked her new puppy or something. She'd look at me, and she'd say, I understand you drank, but why do you have to lie and sneak? Why, why do you do that? And I didn't know. I didn't know. See, I always thought the opposite of love was hate. And I would tell everyone, my wife and I have this love-hate relationship. It's either, it's either making up or having a reason to make up. And, and it, was, it was such a, a mood swing between the two of us. But the truth was, the truth was, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of, of, of love is when you don't care at all. And I never got to a point that I didn't care what my wife thought of me. Never. It, it bothered me, and I wanted to hide it, and I wanted to make sure that she didn't see that horrible side of me. And I was willing to do anything to do that. And uh, it was years. I was seven years sober before I understood why I was so sneaky and why I lied so much. I didn't want to get caught. But I was never sorry till I got caught. Because I was so busy planning the next drunk. I was so busy watching the calendar. It's over a while, and you miss, you miss things because you don't watch the calendar. And uh, Anyways, uh, we finally got to a point. Um, I said we better move. And we moved to Vancouver, and we lived there for four or five years. And then we moved here about 25 years ago. And in between, I'd gone to AA. I'd got caught in my lies enough times, and I'd done enough stupid things that I had to go to AA. And it was, uh, I'll never forget going to the meeting in Vancouver. I had a, we had, we, Joanna had let me buy a 1956 Ford Fairlane. It was going to be my new hobby that was going to keep me from drinking. And I don't know anything about cars. So I laid under this thing and drank. And the bloody windshield wipers didn't work right or anything. And the night I went to AA, it was raining in Vancouver. And I went to the Mount Pleasant group. It was 16th, just off of Main Street. And I had to turn the, the wiper thing on this stupid old Ford. And, uh, and I got there and I clobbered a curb. And, uh, you know, and I walked up and this guy stuck out his hand. And he said, hi, I'm Stan. I'm an alcoholic. Welcome. And I thought, what the hell do you want? And then I went in there, and it was one of these one of these church basements that had a window much like this room right here has. And there were those sweet little blue-haired ladies back there pushing out coffee, or that's what my memory tells me it was. And they pushed out a cup of coffee to me full to the brim, and the table was five feet into the room with the cream and the sugar on it. And I looked at that coffee, and I was shaking like a dog pooping peach pits. And so I splashed her all over the floor. And then I went and found the biggest, fattest, sweatiest guy I could hide behind and sat through that meeting. And there was an old guy there that had originally been from Edmonton, Earl B. Earl B. had curly white hair and a big red face, and he laughed out loud. And he talked, told a story about how when he drank, he used to pour everyone's drinks about two inches and his about four inches. And I thought, gee, I've done that. And then he said, and I kept a dirty glass up in the cupboard. And I thought, that rotten woman of mine called them. And because uh, I did that. And he talked about how halfway through the night he'd start to get drunk and how he'd start pouring everyone else's four inches and they'd be spitting them back in the glass. And I knew she called them then. And... Uh, and I was very paranoid in those days. Every time I drove at night, I, the headlights would be behind me, and I'd think, what did I do the other night? The police are following me now. They're going to get me. And I was so paranoid then. And, uh, 
Anyways, I was in and out of AA um, for a long time. I, I suffered uh, something a lot of you men probably, or some of you may have gone through. I had premature sobriety. I wasn't ready. I didn't want it. I did not want to be an alcoholic. I'd go to AA meetings because I didn't have any excuses or because I got caught again or whatever. But I really didn't want to do what you do to stay sober. Today, since August 8, 1985, my definition of uh, denial is exactly the same as when I got here. It's when I think I don't have to do what you have to do to stay sober. I'm in denial. I have to do the drill. There's no question. But I came back. I moved Joanne here, and uh, I got started going to a meeting. I was going to a meeting. It was called the Youngstown Group. It met Monday nights in Edmonton. And I was in and out so many times that old George started putting my sober date in pencil. <laughs> and that's not funny either. You know. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I really wanted to be upset about that because every time I came back, I was always sorry. I wasn't willing to do the drill or the work, but I was sorry, and I, and I, and I was hurt about it, but I wasn't willing to do what you do to stay sober. Finally, uh, I got charged for impaired driving one more time. I assume I must have been a bit of a blackout because I got to court, fully expecting my lawyer to know what he was doing and to get me off. And the policeman got up there and he flipped open his little black book. He said, I pulled Mr. Killen over at so-and-so street and so-and-so avenue. He handed me his driver's license, his insurance, rolled up the window and drove away. <laughs> you laugh at the wrong parts. <laughs> I like, I didn't remember that part, you know. And my lawyer was supposed to know everything. And so I looked straight down. I didn't want to look at him because I, I knew if he was laughing, I was screwed, you know. <laughs> and then he went on, the policeman went on to say, I subsequently pulled Mr. Killen over four blocks later. He jumped from his car and yelled at me, what the F do you want now? <laughs> so I pled guilty. What do you do? And I came back home from court. And as I was pulling up to that house, I didn't want to play the game we'd played so many times before. Joanne would be hurt and upset, and she wouldn't be able to look at me, let alone talk to me. And I'd wait for the right time, and I'd push her buttons so she'd explode emotionally. She'd be, there'd be snot and tears and anger, and she'd get all this energy off, and then I'd offer her alternative. Just like in the big book where it talks about limiting the number of drinks, drinking wine only, and all that. And I would offer Joanne alternatives. And this day, I couldn't do it. I had a new plan. And the plan was, I thought, I'll just tell, come home and say, I should probably move out. That'll get her. She packed. <laughs> in less than two hours, I was standing on my front porch of my cute little bungalow in the West End, with my matching alcoholic luggage, a pair of green garbage bags. <laughs> and the question on my mind was, how did we get here? This was not the plan. This was not supposed to go this way. This was, she was supposed to throw her arms around me and say, you poor guy, you know. But Joanne had had enough. And so in defiance, I left that house that day thinking my problem's in that house. And I will show her. And I did. I got worse. And uh, I borrowed money from my father and from other people. And in five or six weeks, I dropped 25, 30 pounds. I'd had a seizure on a sidewalk. Um, I was really, really physically ill. I had some sense that I would physically die from alcohol. I really had a sense that it was going to kill me. Physically, it was going to take me out of the game. It wasn't funny at all anymore. And I could not stop. I could not stop. And I went through uh, the treatment center that outside of Edmonton here that's uh, infamous for so many alcoholics in this area. 
And I came out with, uh, with New Hope, and I went through ADAC, and one of the treats, uh, the treats of coming to this, this do this weekend, I find out I went through it with someone's mom, or, or couples, uh, counseling, and it was just kind of nice to see that. We did all the counseling, we did all of that stuff, and I had two more drunks. And they were not remarkable drunks. It was same old, same old. The lights went out, and I came to. Absolutely empty and unable to fight anything or anybody. And I came back to AA one more time. It was on my 31st birthday. They said, keep it simple, so I got sober on my birthday. Don't start any new relationships. Joan and I were broken up, right? You know, so we started over from, from grassroots, and I started on the steps. And, uh, and I was so full of bull, you know, so full of crap. I didn't know where the lie started or stopped, and the truth began. Had it not been for strong men in AA, especially my sponsor, Terry C., I don't know what I would have done. I really don't. There were times um, that I was in everybody's business at the meetings. I was going to coffee shops and uh, doing loving appraisals on all the members at the group. And <laughs> I just had this great spiritual depth, I guess. And, uh, but what was really happening was I was coming to a bottom in AA where I got to to a place where I was willing to do what you were doing. And what you were doing was, was simple stuff. I had joined this group, and they asked me to make coffee. And I thought, huh, me? You can't keep me sober. Why should I? So I went home, and I, I was in the coffee business that day. I worked for Maxwell House. I was the last drip. And... Uh, <laughs> But I was absolutely terrified that you wouldn't like my coffee. Like, I mean, if there is ever a group of people that are more palate fatigued. <laughs> so I went out and I bought Colombian coffee beans with money I didn't have. And I ground them just right. And I made the coffee just right. And no one said one word. <laughs> but the important thing was... I came early with the keys, and I opened up that room, and I laid out the literature, and I set up the tables and the chairs. And I started to live like I believed that AA might work. And for me, that was the most profound thing that happened was. That's when we talk about what it was like and what happened. What happened to me was I really physically joined AA, and I started to live like I believed, and I came to believe because I was part of and, and being part of has always been the most important part for me, to just to be part of you. No better, no worse, just part of you. And then I made a horrible mistake. Um, I started talking. <laughs> and uh, they'd ask me to speak, and I'd talk. And this poor bugger asked me to be a sponsor. Oh, God, what do you do with that, eh? So I tried to look good. And I went out and I got a sponsor, and I thought, I'll get one that won't work out. I'll get this guy that looks like, with the big Irish grin on his face and a brush cut, Terry C. He'll be my sponsor. It won't work out. He was my sponsor for 19 years until he had a heart attack. And uh, the thing was, this bugger asked me to be a sponsor, and he says, comes to me one night, on a Monday night, he says, he says, Rick, I I think I'm ready to do my step three. And I said, oh, great, no problem. I thought, my wife's working Thursday night. Come over to the house. And he'd come over to the house, and I found where step three is. In the meantime, it's right after A, B, and C. The next line says, being convinced, we're now at step three. I thought, great, I'll start here. And I studied a bit, and he came over, and we started reading this thing together. And we got to the top of page 63, and there's a, there's a set of promises there that I make every guy I work with read. And it talks, it talks directly to when do you do your step three, when you're ready. And then we got on our knees and we did step three, and I set the next trap for myself. Because by doing that, 
someone else knew that I had closed the back door. And it was just like closing the back door for me. When I did a step three with another human being, I was trapped in AA. There was no back door. This God thing had to work or else. And then there was a real sense that if I didn't get this four and five done, I wasn't going to be able to stay with you. I really wasn't going to be able to stay with you. And I did first step four, and it was really a grocery list of things I'd like to see changed. And then the next time was with a little guidance and a little help. And there were some marvelous words in the big book that really changed everything about my sobriety. And the words went something to the effect. It was something to do with the grudge list, and it said, uh, we saw that the world had dominated us based on that ground. We weren't going to do very well. And, and then the marvelous part was we, we looked again at our list, and um, we came to see that these people were perhaps spiritually sick and that we prayed for them in that way. And that was the thing that changed step four from being a grocery list into being a spiritual step for me. Because the minute I started letting those people be human that had hurt me instead of being bad people, I was giving them their humanity and I was gaining my own. And no surprise for me, the next thing that kind of happened was I didn't feel the need to forgive me again, that the forgiveness was built into that. And it really helped me a lot because I was able to be a hell of a lot more honest with my inventory because I was only dreadfully, boringly human. And, uh, and it was a great freedom for me. And step four wasn't an awful thing. It was a very freeing thing for me. And I'd done a, I'd done a step five that was searchless and fear-filled previously. <laughs> and I had secrets, damn it. And uh, I was walking across the parking lot from McDonald's one night, and I said to Terry, I said, you know, I, I don't think I got all the stuff on my... He said, yeah, I know. Yeah. And I got on a plane, it was a Friday night, and I flew into Vancouver, and I, did, I put the secrets down on paper. And then I went to my old home group. I was talking about that earlier. My old home group in Vancouver was the Renfrew group. And, and there was an old guy there, and I did went out for coffee, and uh, at the end of coffee, he was, it was just him and me sitting there, and it started, and I didn't have a choice, and it all just started bubbling out, and I did this crap on him, and he looked really bored, you know, but the sense I got was it could never hurt me again, that I could tell anyone in bits and pieces, and it would never, I wouldn't be alone with it again, and I would feel good about me, because I am dreadfully, boringly average on garden variety at best. But alone with it, it seemed a lot bigger. My secrets seemed big. Um, I tried getting real careful in steps six and seven. That was no fun. I understand my six and seven today is uh, that I'm willing to let God guide my life and that I'm to get on with the business of living. And... Uh, and when I started to get that, I started having an adventure with this life and trusting God. And trusting God is always my problem. It's always the problem I have. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I seek justice again. I got sober by seeking mercy. When I was dropped to my knees and I couldn't fight anything or anybody, and I was willing to accept mercy, I got sober. But every now and then, I think I need justice. And I was blessed again. I had, I had strong men in my life that would say things to me like, who's not doing it your way today, Rick? <laughs> ha, ha, ha. And somewhere along the way, I got the message that they were laughing at me, not with me. You know? And that it was okay for me to laugh at me because I'm just human. Um, step 10 has been a real joy and a real chore. Uh, step 9 was um, probably the most humbling things I've done within a couple areas. Uh, never forget calling up my sister and explain to her I was coming back home to London, Ontario, and I wanted to make amends. And, and when I saw her, I said, I don't know how to make amends. I wasn't there for you. And she looked at me and got all misty-eyed. And by then she was married and starting to have kids. And she said, will you be an uncle to my girls? 
And I got the sense that she didn't want me to hurt her again, and she was going to sit back and see if I'd step up. Because I was absent in her growing up. She was younger than me and didn't know me from Adam. So come just before Christmas time, I would call those little girls, and I'd pretend to be Santa. And I'd get a little information on the inside and uh, how they didn't play well together, and I'd do the deep voice on the phone. And at the end of those phone calls, as they got older, they said, Thank you, Uncle Rick. <laughs> and I have a good relationship with my sister today. I love my sister today. She's an amazing woman. And it's, uh, it's a different life. The amend that was the toughest for me was my dad. My dad died drunk. And the amend, I was four years sober. And uh, he was dying. And, and I didn't know what the amend was going to be. And I flew into London, Ontario, because we had the money and the time, and I did it. And I picked up my dad, and I drove him all the way back to Edmonton. And I fed him little shots of booze every time he started going into the DTs. And I got him to Edmonton. But what I did was I shared my story with my dad. And my dad was not going to get sober, and it became obvious. But what it did for me was... When I made those amends with my dad's, or I shared with him who I'd been and who I was trying to become today, he opened up and told me his story. And my dad had a hell of a life. Man, I had nothing to complain about. My dad had a hell of a life. And the peace we made. Um, the last two years of his life, I called him every Sunday night, and I talked to him for 20 minutes to two hours, and I talked to him without any reprisal about his drinking or his inability to get sober. At one point, my dad got so physically sick that I changed his diapers. I mean, he, was, he died the very worst way with his liver shut down. But I was able to allow him his dignity with that, and there was no unfinished business, none whatsoever. My dad and I were on level ground. And the neat thing is, is when I, I look back at my dad, I don't cling to or hang on to the bad things about my dad and the horrible end he came to. I think of the great gifts he had and what a hell of a man he was. There were crippled children's treatment centers built right across this country that were largely he was responsible for making happen. And he was a hell of a guy. He was just a hell of a guy. And when you get the amends done, Get the garbage out of the way. You can see, you can see the good points too. And it was a hell of a deal. And I want to talk about my family too, but I'll talk really short about the twelve-step stuff and about the people in my life. Um, I've been forced to do my work in AA by working with others. You know, I always wanted to look good. Too late, you know. I've always had a perfect face for radio. I'm not going to look good in what I do. But working with others has always kept me on my toes. It's always forced me to open up that book. It's always forced me to be emotionally and spiritually fit. It's, it's driven me to be a better person in AA. And had it been left to me alone, all alone in this head, forget it. What a joke. But I got my wife back, and that's what I want to talk about. This, this theme, keep it simple, Cupid. <laughs> I could kill someone, you know? I, I mean, I'm, I'm short, I'm balding, uh, my hair's falling out of the top, it's showing up above my butt. And I'm going to talk about God, love, you know? Wow, that's wild. Um, but I always wanted to be a good husband. I always wanted to be a dad that the kids would love and respect. I really wanted to do that stuff. I wanted to be, no, not Ozzy and Harriet kind of crap, but I mean, oh, there's young people here. They don't know what I'm talking about, do they, Pat? Yeah, yeah thanks. Don't patronize yourself, honey. <laughs> Anyways, I got my wife back, and it was terrifying to me because I didn't know how to be a husband. I was hanging out at AA meetings, and I didn't go home because she was there. And when I say that, it's not, I don't mean that to be mean or be sarcastic, but I was afraid if I was at home too much, I'd start trying to fix things, and I'd screw up any chance of making my marriage work. 
and I, I was really blessed. I was really blessed that the, the Camel Club opened, and it was this new club, and it's wonderful to see Pat here because we were patrons, original patrons, and got that stupid place going. And it was a nut house. We had Dead Fred and Not Dead Fred. I was Coffee Rick. My sponsor was uh, Brush Cut Terry. And there, w there was all these nicknames, and there were hundreds of people coming and going. And, uh, and it was just excitement. So I had an opportunity to hang out there and mind everyone else's business while the steps happened to me. And one day Terry said, don't you think it's time you took a 12-step home? And I thought, you rotten old man. And how do I do that? You know. And for years, I'd be talking to my wife and backing out of the room as I'm talking to her. None of you have ever done that, I'm sure. And I didn't want a confrontation, and I didn't want to fight, and I didn't want to do those things. And it took years for me to get all the amends done to a point that I could talk back. I'm happy to report I'm pleased to talk back any time I think I'm right. Things are much different these days. But I married Irish Catholic, and in, in, when you marry Irish Catholic, everybody in the family expects kids, or they think there's something wrong with dad. And uh, I was sober, and we're back together. And so we decided we'd start a family. And uh, after about, I don't know how many months, and it didn't happen, and she's a labor and delivery nurse, I learned all about not wearing tight pants, <laughs> not sitting in hot bathtubs, alarm clocks, performing at night. And when we still didn't get pregnant, uh, couple years sober, we decided we'd look into adoption. And it seemed like a good option. And uh, this poor social worker came into house to see if we're fit to be parents. And she asked us all sorts of questions. And it was, it was uncomfortable. But before she came in, I, I went to my sponsor, and this is around step three time. And I said, Terry, I don't know what to tell her. Do I tell her I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous and risk everything? I don't know what to do. And he gave me a big, long speech. He said, I don't know, Rick. What do you think you should do? And I stood with that, but I really understood. And, and thank God I had a strong man sponsor in my life that let me make my decisions, that didn't hold my hand and tell me what to do. And that poor social worker, she came into our house, and I, she sat down on the couch, and I said, would you like a cup of tea? I'm in AA. I went and made tea. Hmm. Three weeks later, the phone rang, and the woman it was at my office line, and I was doing the last drip thing, and she said, she said, I'm not your social worker. I'm the department head. My name is Elaine. And then she paused, and it seemed like three days. It was probably ten seconds. She says, uh, first off, as an adoptive couple, we think you're wonderful. Secondly, I like what you said Saturday night at the Camel Club. And after a false start and a, and a failed adoption, um, our first son came into our life uh, through private adoption, and uh, he's a hell of a young man. You know, I couldn't be prouder. Don't get me started, because I can talk for hours on that stuff. And I had no skills to be a husband, let alone a father. And all I'd learned in AA was... Uh, there were, that there were real examples of what to do and real examples of what not to do. So when my kid would come home and, and be upset about the other kids, I'd say, I don't know. Is that an example of what to do or what not to do? And my kids have great discernment in their life, and they see life as it is because they're getting a sponsorship from a guy with a brush cut. He taught me how to be a dad by how his example. And... Uh, and he made me take a 12-step home and start, uh, start being at home and be a dad. I guess about, uh, about three years after that, was it three years, uh, the phone rang. It was a private adoption society, and it was another adoption for us. And we brought a beautiful little baby girl home. We named her Sarah. 
We had her home six days. And the law in Canada and Alberta is the birth mom has ten days to change her mind. And on the sixth day, Joanne called me, beeped me. I had a beeper. It's before cell phones, 15 years ago. Before I had one, that's for sure. And uh, Joanne said, the agency just called. Our birth mom has changed her mind. They want Sarah back. And every fiber of my being just wanted to hate and resent. How dare this happen after six days? And I, and I prayed and I asked my sponsor and he gave me another long speech. They're, they're famous for it, apparently. I said, what do I do? And he says, Rick, what's the right thing to do? And Joanne and I discussed it. And the right thing for us to do was not to get in that poor girl's face and lay any guilt trips on her at all. The right thing to do was what we did. We took, uh, we took Sarah back to the agency and we never saw the birth mom. We gathered up all the wonderful gifts that had been given from our friends in AA over those six days and took Sarah and those gifts back to the agency. And, uh, and we got through it. We got through it. Sarah's due date was January 28th, two, or 1992. And uh, that May, my wife came to me and said, you're not going to believe this. I'm pregnant. And I said, you're right, I don't believe you. And I went over and looked out the window. She says, why are you looking out the window? And I said, well, the last time this happened, there are three wise men and a virgin from the east, and I don't want to miss it. Our second son was born almost a year, within a week of a year of Sarah's duty. And we named him Luke. And he has learning difficulties just like his dad. So he's very special. And he does well in school because we know what the problem is. And my wife works real hard with us. She's, she's been the bad cop on homework. I've been the good cop. I'm a suck. And, uh, but he does well in school and he's a hell of a young man. And he's discovered football and uh, he has self-esteem. And... Um, and he doesn't have those characteristics of being lost and alone and afraid like we do. And he talks to me. He tells me stuff I wouldn't have told my old man. And, uh, and I have to have the grace to listen without laughing at the poor kid. And I have to have the grace to be a dad. And these are the gifts I was given in AA. I was given these gifts because alcohol surrendered me, put me in an absolute state of mercy where I couldn't fight anything or anybody and my job ever since is to stay in a state of mercy and not look for justice and not try and fix the world but to take care of my corner to shoot up show up and make an honest effort and I'm blessed um, God's been very good to me um, Wendy and I've talked about um, cancer more than once and uh, about 10 years ago, I went to the doctor because I was a little short of breath, and the doctor uh, took x-rays. Two days later, he called me back and says, come on in, Rick. And he'd been my doctor for 20 years, and, and uh, they found a spot in my lung and uh, went in for all the CAT scans and everything. And uh, my little guy, he's 15, he still gets teary-eyed when he talks about this stuff. Um, I went and got the CAT scans, and they said there's absolutely none of the indications that are normally there for benign tumors. Your tumor's not calcified at all. Less than 2% of the tumors are uncalcified that are benign. And so for 17 days, I had anxiety attacks. I had all those problems. And the night before surgery, when they decided to take that thing out, the parish priest from... I married Irish Catholic, so I'm a rental, eh? And he came in, and he held my hand, and he prayed with me. And I went to sleep that night, and the magic of, of being a member of AA and knowing what prayer does or being part of prayer so long happened. I fell asleep, and they had to wake me up to prepare me for surgery. And I slept through the night with the best sleep I'd had in 17 days. And I had the surgery, and I woke up, and there was some jackass doctor from AA that I knew that lives in Parksville now. First person I met when I woke up, and uh, he, says, uh, he says, you're cured. Ha, ha, ha. I walked away. 
and uh, I'd had a benign tumor. But people, I knew that people wouldn't say the word cancer around me, and it was an awful feeling. And it is. It's a terrible place to be when you're alone with that. But people in AA are different. We talk to each other a different way. I don't belong to the program of AA, and it's not semantics for me. I know it sounds like semantics. I belong to the fellowship of AA. I tried to stay sober on fellowship. It didn't work for me. If you're going to try that, God bless you, because there's only examples here, examples of what to do and what not to do, what will work and what won't work. It's not right or wrong, and people die. And when people die, we all get examples of what not to do. But I, uh, I, got, I got so lucky that uh, I got so uncomfortable that I had to do the steps. I had to do some work on the steps and that I had strong men in my life. I made the mistake of getting this damn sponsor, you know. And he used to say to me, Rick, whatever you do with these guys you work with, do it with love. Don't be hard on these people. Do it with love. And I thought, yeah, that's nuts. I'm going to tell them straight up. And I was, I had a shark-infested mouth, and I was brutal with people for a long time. I missed the point that Terry was doing that with me. He was respecting, he was respecting my ability to hit my little bottoms with everything and, and get to the point that I was willing to do the work I was willing to do. My hope and my prayer is that people that are here tonight all stay sober that the people are here will do the work they need to do to know the joy that they're supposed to know in their life. That there's no bad examples in this room. It's hard to let go. You know, I'm afraid of you people, and I'm afraid for you people. I love this thing because it works so well. And it gives an enthusiasm and passion that I'm able to put in the other areas of my life that I would never have believed. Not in a hundred years. AA works. There's recovery in my life. There's recovery in my family's life. And it's because uh, the fellowship makes you do the damn steps. So I thank you very much for listening to my story. I got a great life. I got two amazing kids. One of them's even out of my basement now. <laughs> you know, he's moved on to university, he's got his own scholarship. He's on Dean's lists. He's doing all that stuff, you know, and he's living his dreams. And it's because you gave me a new dream. Thank you.